I'm Tracy, and I have the privilege each and every week uh, to study God's Word, uh, to learn from it, and then what I get to do, I get excited about this. It applies to my life, and I'm like, okay, how do I, how do I teach this as well? Like, so it, my words are not uh, inerrant. I don't know if you've known me a little bit, you might figure out that I make a lot of errors. Uh, but I, what my job is, is to try to clearly tell you what Scripture what God is telling us. This word is inerrant. One of the things about this church is we love, right, we are all part of the body of Christ, whatever age you are, so we love you part of the worship, right? We have a, uh, we institute our worship table back there for kids, right? Parents, if you have young kids that maybe need to draw or help them keep their attention, if you need to draw and keep your attention, I got it, I go, whatever, you knit, that's fine. Uh, so parents, you're welcome to bring your children back there as well, kind of help them in that area. We do have a nursery back there for zero to three if you want. I love children in here. If you're worried that your kid is making too much noise, don't worry. It might be bothering people around you, but it's not bothering me. And that's all that matters. Uh, no, no. But trust me, the people here in this congregation, we love to hear the voices of children. Right? It probably bothers you more than it probably everyone else around you. Rob's Lowe, Rob Lowe's literally best role in his career is when he played Chris Traeger in, in literally the best sitcom ever, Parks and Rec. A Traeger was known for literally one word over and over again. Literally. This is literally the best comic gag in all sitcom history. Now, some of you may have experienced in real life people inappropriately and misusing the word literally. But literally, literally means ordinary meanings of words. Exact equivalence of words. However, it has come to mean and the modern-day expression as to overemphasize the accuracy of a statement or to exaggerate the truth of a statement. And here's the thing. Uh, if you open up Merriam-Webster's dictionary, which is the only dictionary you should use, by the way, particularly if you're from Springfield, <laughs> right? the second definition of literally is metaphorical. It has now come to mean, literally, means figuratively. <laughs> figuratively, which le means metaphorically. It's the exact opposite meaning of literally, and now literally means the same thing as figuratively. Try to understand that. This is why people are using it in all that way. But that's what dictionaries do. They represent how people use words. Figuratively is a word that uses metaphors, that tries at a concept to try to help us to understand an objective reality that is somewhat abstract in thought. So we have to use metaphorical or figurative language to explain it. And here's the point that I'm trying to get across. Jesus uses figurative language all the time. 
It's almost exclusively what he uses, figurative language. And it's not because Jesus is against literal language. It's not against that he's against clarity. Uh, Jesus believes in literal truth. He is the objective, literal truth of the universe. The whole Gospel of John start off with this, this weird philosophical statement that Jesus is the Logos, that Jesus is the Word of God. And Logos is this philosophical word at that time, that, that people pursuit of what is the meaning of the universe? What is the purpose of the universe? And John starts off his Gospel saying, hey, Jesus, this person is God, and he's the Logos, the literal purpose and meaning of the universe. So Jesus understands literal language, but he uses figurative language all the time. So the question begs is, why does Jesus use figurative language? Why isn't he just clear with us? Why isn't he literal all the time? Well, I want you to understand it clearly. If God, and he is, infinite and we are people that are finite, temporal. So our minds have finite space and energy and effort, right? There is limited in capacity, although more than what we probably can understand. Jesus, God, is infinite. There is no boundary or barrier. And so this infinite God is trying to explain infinite things to finite beings. Things have to be figurative. He's trying to explain abstract realities that are, are literally objective to minds that can't always comprehend the infinite. This is why Jesus used figurative language. It's basically, Jesus used figurative language because he has to dumb down things for us. It's why he uses parables all the time. You're like, why does Jesus speak in parables? Which is really a, a, a very a robust figurative language, this whole allegory of metaphors to try to explain an eternal truth. In fact, the Gospel of Mark tells us that he tells parables, he speaks in, in metaphors and allegories and parables so that people cannot understand. He speaks in parables so that only the people that he gives the true understanding to may understand. So in some ways, he speaks in figurative language so that only that he gives the truth to can understand. Now that may seem really deep and heavy and hard and difficult. Like, why would God do that? But we've been talking about this. We talked about it last week. The Father gives people to Jesus. Let's turn to John 6, 41 through 44. So the Jews grumbled about him, about Jesus, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven, which is very figurative language, right? Jesus is not saying, I am literally bread that came down from heaven, right? He's, he's using a metaphor. And they said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to the me unless the Father who sent me draws him. I will raise him up on the last day. The crowd is grumbling about Jesus. Just like the crowd grumbled to Moses. 
as the literal bread came down from heaven in which they literally ate. And they grumbled about that provision that God gave them miraculously. They knew it was miraculous. It came from the sky. They knew it was God's provision. And they still grumbled. This isn't enough. And so here it is. Jesus, who is the true provision of life, of salvation. And they grumble. He reveals himself. And they begin to grumble more and more about him. It's a parallel. And Jesus says, I am the living and true bread as figurative language. I mean, like, I am God. And here's what I want you to understand. They actually understood what he was saying. They understood clearly that he was claiming to be God. They understood the figurative language. They understood this metaphor. It says, I've come down for heaven. Right? But they say, like, we know his parents. I know what you're saying. I know that you're, you are saying that you are God. But I know your parents. I know where you came from. I know your heritage. Here's the thing. In verse 44, it says, Jesus says, no one can come to me. And what have we learned about come to me? In verse 35, we read last week, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall not thirst. Right, hunger, this coming and belief are the same things. He's saying two things that are the exact same thing. Coming and believing are the same thing. So no one comes, no one believes in me unless the Father gives him that knowledge. They understood what Jesus was saying, but they couldn't believe it. They couldn't trust it. They couldn't wrap their mind around it. And that knowledge only comes from the gift of the Father. God gives that to people. We can tell people about Jesus. Jesus can tell them about himself. He can act in a certain way. He can do miraculous things. And yet people will still not believe it unless the Father gives them that knowledge. In verse 44, no one can come. It literally means no one has the power. No one has, has the ability to come and believe in Jesus unless the Father gives him that ability to know. The ability to know and to believe. This, this is special revelation. We just sing about a general revelation about how all creation sings and we join, all creation proclaims the glory of who God is. Right? And that no one is without excuse. But the special revelation, the very unique revelation, is that God reveals in our hearts who he is. And only God does that. It's not something we can rationalize out. The Jews sat there, they contemplated what Jesus was saying, and they couldn't wrap their minds around it. They knew what he was proclaiming, but they couldn't believe it. It is divine revelation only. Last week, once again, we talked about the Father wills and he gives people to Jesus. The Father wills and he gives people to Jesus. And what does Jesus do? He holds on to those people and he holds on to what the Father gives. He does not let it go. In John 6, 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. The Father wills and gives to Jesus. And what does Jesus do? He holds on and he gives eternal life to those that believe. To those that believe. 
The Father gives belief to people, meaning he gives them to Jesus. And then Jesus gives the people, the people believe, and he gives them eternal life. And Jesus never lets go. Let's hammer this point even harder because this is what Jesus is doing in this passage about divine revelation. God-given special revelation in verse 45. Jesus says, it is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Whoever has heard and learned from the Father comes to me, believes in me, right? It was taught in the prophets. It was taught in the Old Testament, Jesus says. This is in your scripture that is clear about this, that God only gives special revelation, that God himself is the one that gives this divine insight, and that he alone will teach his people. Let's point back, Isaiah 54, 13. All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. God alone teaches this. This word peace is shalom, and man, it's a complex, deep word, and I think we just kind of skirt by, but I think a simple way of understanding a very complex thing is that harmony. Your children will have harmony with God. They'll have harmony with each other. This, this all-encompassing harmony. In Jeremiah 31, 33-34, For this is the covenant. This is the, the promise that God makes with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I, God says, will put my heart within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Right? See, God gives this. God gives us a new heart, a, a, a new spirit to understand. And we don't have to teach each other. Because who God gives that to? God has taught them. God has revealed who he is. God has shown it in their hearts. That is God teaching them. Ezekiel 36 through 26. God says, I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of the stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Do you hear anything that we're doing in this? This is all a divine gift of God. This new heart. Heart is not just a place of emotion, but the center of who you are. Intellect, will, and passion, and decision. All those kinds of things. In Joel 2.28 and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Right? God will pour out his spirit upon his people. And they will prophesy. What is prophesy means? It's not going to tell the future. Prophesy is really, literally just means a messenger of God. They will tell people about God. They will point people to God. The New Testament uses the same language that Jesus is using as well in 1 Corinthians 2.13. And uh, Paul says, and we impart in this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths 
through those that are spiritual, right? Paul says, I am teaching through the Spirit, not through my own power, but God is teaching through me to you and to you in your own hearts. 1 Thessalonians 4, 9. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves has been taught by God specifically to love one another. This is God's inward working of the Holy Spirit in you that is teaching you to love like he loves. And then 1 John 2.20. But you have been anointed by the Holy One. Anointed by God with his Holy Spirit. And you will have all knowledge. Does that mean you, have, you know everything? No. What this saying is you will have all the knowledge that is sufficient for you to know God. We actually talked about this uh, in our uh, high school, Sunday school class, that scripture is sufficient. It is clear in the knowledge of who God is. It's sufficient. That's the sufficiency of scripture. Calvin and the uh, reformers and, and, and the Westminster Confession of Faith, which I know you're talking a little bit about in uh, adult Sunday school, and we are talking about in high school, right? This, they call this the inward illumination of the Holy Spirit. That's what scripture, like God gives us this, gives us new life, the baptism of the Holy Spirit to begin to actually understand who he is, to begin to actually understand and believe in his literal words in which he speaks figuratively. This is what God does to you. This is his gift. Jesus is God. Jesus is Lord. You can only believe that, state that, if God gives you that gift. If God gives you the Holy Spirit to utter and believe those things in your heart. Jesus is the bread, the provision that came down from heaven. In John 6, 46-47, Not that anyone has seen the Father, goes harder at this, except he who is from God. He who has seen the Father, once again, this, this uh, language, figurative language, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever, has, whoever believes has eternal life. Seen here is visibly, it literally means literally, visibly seen. Colossians 1.15, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He is the special revelation of God. He is God incarnate in the flesh. And so how he acts and behaves, you begin to understand who God is. What he speaks and what he says, you begin to understand who God is. Reveal that to you. And yet, Jesus walked and talked and lived with people. The, 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 there's not more clear revelation of who God is. And yet people around him still do not believe. Still people believe. Like, he could walk in front here today right, and come back and people still not believe. Only if God gives them the ability to see it. I know that may sound circular. I know that is a, a circular logic. But uh, uh, here's a little thing. All knowledge on this finite mind is is based on circular logic. All knowledge is based on circular logic in a finite mind. We'll, we'll talk about the epistemology on a later time. All right, John 14, 9, Jesus says, that says to Philip, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. 
How can you say, show us the Father? You say, I am God. I am the Father. You're asking to show us the Father. I've been shown you all along. I am the Father. This, this scene is not just a visible scene, a literal, but it's figurative language as, te- as well. To understand, it also means you've seen Jesus, you understand, and you believe. If you underst- Jesus is saying, if you understand who I am, if you understand who the Father is, if you understand who God is, you would believe. If you've seen me, you would believe me. Whoever believes, he says, has eternal life. Whoever sees has eternal life. That is a figurative language for belief. Whoever sees, whoever believes in Jesus, is resurrected from death to life. I want to I summarize this and hit this nail head because Jesus is spending a lot of verses talking about the same thing over and over again. I want to be really crystal clear in this. God the Father gives people to Jesus. He does that by giving them his Holy Spirit to illuminate their hearts and minds to profess and to see that Jesus is God. People understand and they believe in Jesus. The the Holy Spirit gives them that understanding. And those that believe, those that profess that Jesus is Lord, Jesus gives them eternal life. Did you see that, how that went? The Father gives people to Jesus. He does that by giving them the ability to believe in Jesus. Those that profess Jesus is Lord, Jesus gives eternal life. Now, if the Father gives people belief, they are saved. If he gives them the ability to see Jesus, to profess, to believe, to trust, Jesus, it's not like Jesus is like, well, maybe I'll give it to them. It's this unnecessary thing. It's the line of which it happens. So, is believing important or necessary for eternal life? Yes! Yes! It's all part of the necessary process. And we, uh, Jody is preaching about the solas in the, uh, uh, in the adult Sunday school, right? sola fide. Sola fide, right? Unjustified by faith alone. You are justified by faith alone. But how do you get that faith? How do, where does that faith come from it is necessary absolutely necessary the good news is not that we believe the good news is god's grace the good news is that god gives people belief and faith and sight to see him understanding him that he gives understanding of figurative language of of infinite things to finite minds Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Sola gratia. It is by grace alone. By grace alone you have been saved. Is faith necessary? Absolutely. Is faith the good news? No. No. The good news is that God gives. The Father gives us the ability to believe and to come and to see Jesus. Augustine said this, believe and you have eaten. Believe in this, in present tense language, believe 
trust in Jesus, which means that you have eaten, past tense. You have eaten, which you understand this is figurative language. It's not that you have not literally eaten Jesus, that you have participated, you have believed, you have come to Jesus. Belief is, is, is part of the end game of God's work in you. It's part of the end game. In verses 48 through 59 of what we read this morning, Jesus hammers this point uh, home even more with even more uh, hard and heavy figurative language, right? Bread equals flesh, believe equals eat flesh and drink blood. I mean, he's like, eat flesh, eat my flesh, drink my blood. This is figurative language. He is not saying literally eat my uh, flesh and drink my blood. In fact, because the Jews actually take this literally. They said, what are, you, are, are we cannibals? And they take this literally. They're not understanding this. They don't understand this figure of language. They're like, are you expecting us to physically eat you and then we'll have eternal life? This does not make any sense. This is not who we are. It's also this language he's using those verses is not referring to communion. Except in this sense. Communion refers to what this is referring to. And I'll get to this in a second, right? So eat and drink language is not communion language drink because drinking blood, this is highly offensive language and jarring language for the Jewish ear and mind because they're prohibited from drinking any blood of any animal because blood is associated with violent, horrific death. It's, it's, we are not to participate in this. So what is Jesus figuratively speaking about? Eat my blood and drink my flesh. Violent and horrific death. He's talking about the cross, isn't he? They couldn't understand it at this moment. But he's talking about, I'm going to die violently and horrifically by your hands. My blood is going to be shed. You need to participate in that. You don't need to literally eat it. You need to participate and be united in me. It doesn't mean that you and I need to die on a cross. That's not the, that's not the gift of God. Jesus dies on our behalf. Jesus' life is shed on our behalf so that we don't have to eternally die, so that we don't have to pay the penalty of our things. It's not that we ask God to do this for us. He just does this for us. This is his gift that he does. Eat and drink mean believe and trust. Let me show this to you. It's verses 60, 40, chapter 6, verses 40, 44, 54. See the parallels. For this is the will of my Father, that whatever looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him on the last day. Verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him on the last day. Looks, believes, comes. It's all the same Different words for the meaning of the same thing. Trust in Jesus. And then hear this, 54. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. I want to raise him up on the last day. It's the same language which all means eat and drink means believe. And when we believe, when God gives us that gift, we then are united with Christ because the Father gives us to the Son and Christ holds us. Christ keeps us. We are united with him. 
We are united with his death on the cross because he dies on our behalf. We're united in his resurrection because he, he is the first of the resurrection in which we all will be resurrected with him. When we believe and trust in Jesus, we are united in him. And verse, verse 54 says, we abide in him. In Matthew 16, 24, 25, when Jesus talks in this language, he says uh, to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, believe, trust me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whatever save his life will lose it. Whatever loses his life for my sake will find it. Now, is Jesus saying literally die on a cross? No, he's saying if, if, you, if you believe and trust in me, you're going to walk and do what I do. You're going to be in my character. And what is my character? How have I demonstrated this in the world? I lay down my life for others. I lay down my will for others. That's when we're united with Jesus. When we live a life in that way. We eat and drink. That means we trust him fully with our life. Believe. And you have eaten. And you have trusted. Now listen, I can teach and explain you what the things mean in Scripture. Some of them. Some of them are really hard. I can't do it. I skip over those verses. It's not true. I work really hard with those verses. I can, I can clearly make connections for you. And really, anyone can do what I do, in a sense. right? If they, if they spend the work and send the time, they can do this. They can clearly teach and explain to you. But only God... Only God can teach you to believe. Only God can gift you the gift of knowing who Jesus is. Only God can unite you with him in his death and resurrection. This is literally the good news. That only God does this. I can't do it for you. You can't do it for your kids, your friends, or your family. Here's what you can do. You can teach them. You can, you can explain scripture to them. You can introduce them to Jesus. You can pray. You can pray on behalf of the one who actually has the ability to do this. You can pray, get down on your knees, whatever. You can pray day in and day out. And I urge you to do this. Do it for your children. Do it for your friends. Do it for your neighbor. Do it for your enemies. Do it for your parents. Anyone, you can do it. I don't know how or who God will answer that prayer for. But you can pray. You can teach and you can explain. You can do it with words. You can do it with your life. And you can pray for people. But only God gives this gift. This is his grace. This is his work. I mean, this is good news. This is practical good news. Here's what you can do. I'm going to spend a life learning more about who God is. So I can teach and I can live away that people may know who he is. I'm going to spend a lifetime praying for others that God will be giving them this gift. But you and I don't control this gift. And we certainly don't control God. 
where we can pray and we can ask. This is God's gift. This is his mercy and his power alone. Let us pray. Gracious and heavenly Father, I thank you that you have revealed yourself to us through Jesus, through your word. I thank you that you give us the ability to understand and to believe and to trust in your word. Clarity and the sufficiency of your word. Well, Lord, we come today as a people that pray. We pray for our children. Lord, that you give this gift to them. Lord, that in some ways that you free us from this responsibility as well. That we can't believe for our children. We can't believe for our neighbors and our friends. And Lord, we pray for them as well too. We pray for our extended family, our parents. That you give them this gift and this grace to know you. That you give them your Holy Spirit to change their hearts. We pray for our community, our, uh, uh, the church, uh, someone in, in this room. We pray that you, they, you give them this gift right now to know who you are, that to believe it in their heart, to trust in you. Whether it's just a mustard seed of trust that you will grow that seed because it's your work to believe in you. And Lord, we pray for the Springfield, greater Springfield area. Lord, that you give them a heart to believe. And people that we are co-workers that we encounter. Lord, you know the names and people that are on our heart. Right now, and everyone in this room that has a name that is on our heart, we pray for them. Lord, give them this gift. Change their heart. And Lord, there are names that are not on our heart. We ask. You ask and we show us who we ought to pray for. We give you thanks that you are a God that saves. And you are a God that loves. And that you are a God that holds us fast. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said.